Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Mountain Lion podcast. Today, we have another workshop interview, but this one is from Aptum in Denver, Colorado in the fall of 2019, pre all the COVID virus issues that we're dealing with now. Uh, It seems like a million years ago. And this is Mark Isham playing in a sentimental mood I thought that that would be the most appropriate tune to play as we ease into this workshop interview with Marina Mutter from U Pittsburgh Medical Center. And uh, as we turn the corner on 100,000 deaths at least from the coronavirus this past week, uh, we're all in a sentimental mood. So... Enjoy this interview, and I will see you next time. Welcome to our podcast for today, and this is a continuing series of podcasts that was stimulated by Clerkship Directors of Internal Medicine Council discussion, and we were attempting to tap into more of the talent pool that uh, we are so lucky to work with through AIM, and this is through all five organizations under AIM. And so today's podcast is actually an interview with Marina Mutter, who is at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, and she's going to give us a little more background in a moment. And this was a workshop that was highly rated at the Aptum 2019 fall meeting in Denver, Colorado. Now, unfortunately, I was unable to attend this workshop because I was at another one. And in looking through the list of workshops, I thought this one looked like a really intriguing and valuable uh, workshop that would be a good discussion for this Mountain Lion podcast and for all of you listeners from AIM, CDIM, Aptum, or anywhere else for that matter. So the workshop title was Round Like a Champion, How to Leverage the Skills of Expert Educators in the World of Medical Education. And so I'm not going to get into what the content of this workshop is because Marina is going to tell us about that in a moment. But in the meantime, Marina, I was wondering if you could please introduce yourself, tell us about where you grew up, went to college, medical school, residency, and tell us about your current position and uh, what institution you are at. Sure. Um, so actually, I, I grew up in northeastern New Jersey, spent kind of most of my life there, and then um, ended up going to college at Lehigh University. Um, I did actually an integrated business and engineering program there, and then kind of switched gears a little bit and decided I wanted to go to medical school. So then I went to medical school in upstate New York at the University of Rochester, and then did my internal medicine training at Yale. 
And then after, actually towards the end of my residency, I was sort of thinking about next steps in my life and uh, medical education was sort of something I had always been interested in. I decided to apply to general internal medicine fellowships kind of across the country and then ended up coming here to the University of Pittsburgh, which is where I am currently, to do a um, basically what's a medical education fellowship here, and I'm actually in the hospitalist um, track, and I'm getting my master's in medical education right now. And how many years in length is your fellowship? It's two years. Um, I think that's partly because of the master's degree. Mm-hmm. And so you're in your second year of your second fellowship? Second year, correct, yes. Oh, okay. So you were at uh, in New Jersey, then... Rochester, New Haven, and now you're in Pittsburgh. Correct. So you've been around. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> so you have a, probably a lot of valuable perspectives here for us. Yeah. Um, so um, before we get started, I also was wondering what you like to do for fun outside of medicine when you're not practicing or thinking about education in your fellowship and such. Yeah, um, I'd say probably my biggest hobby is sports. So I grew up like playing soccer, basketball, softball my whole life. Um, throughout middle school, high school. Nowadays, I've actually I've been playing a lot of sand volleyball. So the weather's actually getting pretty nice in Pittsburgh nowadays. Um, and you know, with the easing of restrictions, at least a little bit, I mean, you know, we're allowed to have smaller crowds now. Um, so I've been getting back into sand volleyball. Um, so I try to stay active. Sports. Um, I read a lot. I've always been a pretty avid sort of nonfiction reader. So. And, and last favorite uh, nonfiction book that you read? Yeah, so I actually just finished this book called We Were the Lucky Ones. I'm not sure if that's something you've heard of, but it was basically about um, this person who realized that much of her um, family um, actually survived World War II in Poland. Um, and so as she, as she grew up and kind of learned a little bit more about her family members at her kind of grandparents level, um, she decided that the story was just kind of so amazing that all of her family members survived that she decided to tell it in a book form. Hmm. Um, so it's a really it's a really interesting sort of nonfiction, both historical sort of accurate book about um, the Polish experience in World War II and about her family members that survived. It's a really great read. Oh, okay. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Good recommendation. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so needless to say, with any uh, workshop that's highly rated at AIM or APTM or any of the other meetings under AIM, um, it mm-hmm. takes uh, a team to create the workshop and present it. Brief- mm-hmm. Briefly, could you tell me just who the other workshop presenters were with you in Denver, Colorado last fall? Sure, yeah. So actually, so it was myself, and then there were two other um, general internal medicine fellows, so Drew Klein and Jillian Kyle. They're both second-year fellows with me. Um, and then our senior mentor on the workshop was Raquel Baranowski, who's one of the associate program directors uh, for the internal medicine residency program here at the University of Pittsburgh. And she actually did our same fellowship uh, many years ago oh, and stayed on okay. as faculty. Oh, excellent. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so, what was the basic premise of this Aptum workshop that you guys presented? Mm-hmm. So, our, our goal for this workshop was really just to introduce um, the audience to some of Doug Lamov's 
teaching principle. So we all of the content for the workshop was derived from this book, Teach Like a Champion, um, actually the second version of it, which are basically high-yield um, techniques that the author learned from highly effective K-12 through educators um, that we kind of adapted to our medical education field. So this was actually a book that we all read as part of our master's degree in one of our courses called Fundamentals of Adult Learning, where we read a lot of kind of influential um, books about, about teaching principles and adult learning theory and things like that. And so we thought um, that actually a lot of the content in this book, even though it was meant for K-12 educators, is actually pretty relevant to our world of medical education. And so we, we tried to pick out some of what we thought were the most interesting, most applicable, and also the most relevant techniques and, and condense some of them into um, the workshop here. And so we thought this was something that we found interesting and that we thought that the audience would also benefit from from learning. Hmm. So it sounds like you went through the book and sort of basically combed through for lessons mm-hmm. um, that you thought would be applicable applicable to higher level sort of advanced learners in, in uh, the medical field. Yes, definitely. Okay. And also techniques that we thought um, people could really implement um, in the kind of, I mean, we know that our audience is going to be coming from um, a variety of different backgrounds, inpatient, outpatient, medical school, or medical students, residents. And so we tried to pick techniques that we thought the audience members could relate to um, and actually think about applying in their everyday teaching experiences. Hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about about how Doug, so it's pronounced Lemov or Lemov? Doug Lemov. Lemov. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how his book is roughly organized? Sure, yeah. So the version that we uh, took all of our principles from is the second version. So there are 62 total techniques, and they're organized into four different parts. Um, so the first part is check for understanding second academic ethos ratio, and then five principles of classroom culture. So kind of bigger concepts, and then within each of those different parts are um, the techniques that I talked about. So you try to break it down into smaller sections um, with bigger themes. And these techniques, um, my understanding from, I haven't read the second volume, the 2.0, but uh, Mm -hmm. read the original one. And it's been a while, but my understanding is this was these were actually techniques he learned by going into classrooms mm-hmm. all over the place, basically mm-hmm. observing and then coming back, videotaping, and then breaking down the videotaping. Is that roughly yeah. how he came up with yeah, these? Uh-huh. That's my understanding too. Yeah, his original goal was really just to figure out what it was that high-performing um, K-12 educators across the country were doing, what techniques it was that, that, that were so effective. And he initially just started sort of writing them down, scribbling down the techniques, and just watching people. Uh, and eventually he realized that there were a lot of techniques that these uh, high-performing educators had in common. Um, so he started kind of organizing those techniques into different groups, and then he gave them all kind of nice little easy-to-remember names. Um, as well. So exactly, just like you mentioned, he he just started out by observing educators and noting what it was that made these educators so effective, and then ultimately, um, you know, published the first version and the second version of the book. Hmm. And this is probably jumping way ahead almost to the end of this interview, but do you know if anyone's tried to do something like that with medical education? You know, I'm not 
not 100% sure. I imagine maybe at a, on a more local level, mm-hmm. um, various institutions might have. Mm-hmm. Um, I, but I'm not, I'm actually, I'm not sure about that. There is a book around that I that came out recently that Sanjay Saint, who's at University mm-hmm. of Michigan, uh, did with a, I think a PhD okay. co kind of investigator, where um, they went and and observed. I think it was ten or maybe twenty, very f- you know highly res- regarded and respected educators, but they didn't mm-hmm. break it down in this way. It's sort of more general mm-hmm. themes of what these educators mm-hmm. were doing, but nothing mm-hmm. comparable to that I know of. So, boy, maybe that would be the direction for your next <laughs> work is yeah. going, going around from, if you can get some funding to go to different medical centers. And I always right, so right, thought right. that would be really fun. So, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so your goals for the workshop were pretty broad to mm-hmm. demonstrate an understanding of uh, one, setting high expectations, two, gathering data on student mastery, and three, building ratio. So those may be new terms to our listening audience, but can you briefly elaborate on what you were trying to teach at your workshop, and um, and then we can get into what some of those sections were? Sure, yeah. So. We, as I mentioned earlier, we looked through the book itself, and of the 62 techniques, we tried to think about which of them were kind of most applicable to our world of medical education. And so these three categories that you just mentioned were three of the chapters in the book. And within each of these, there were multiple other sort of techniques about how to do that. So how techniques for setting high expectations, techniques for gathering data, and then techniques for building ratio. So those are the three that we thought actually would probably just would be the most helpful to the people in the audience um, and the most applicable to our, our field. And I'm happy to talk a little bit more. Yeah. Tell us, tell us about the techniques in setting high expectations. I think that was the first um, section, if you will, of your workshop. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. Um, so we, so for each of these three, we talked about four different techniques. So there were twelve in total. Um, so for the first, the first part of our workshop, we talked about how to set high expectations. And so an example, and I can actually go through each of them if you want, but one one of the first ones that we talked about is a technique he calls no opt-out, which is basically how you um, ensure that everybody participates, everybody answers the questions that they're asked, um, and nobody kind of gets to get out of saying, you know, I'm not sure, or I don't know, or pass along the question to um, somebody else. Another one that he talks about is right is right. Um, So basically ensuring that the person you're answering or you're asking the question of answers the question fully, um, so not giving you a partially correct answer or you being okay with a partially correct answer. Um, So techniques that you might be able to help out with that are saying, you know, I like 80% of that or you're most of the way there. Um, So letting them know that they're mostly there but they're not 100% there and you want them to get the answer um, or, you know, get as thorough of an answer as you wanted. Um, the, The third technique in this, a bucket of setting high expectations is stretch it. And I think this is one that we actually use a lot already. So when a learner answers a question um, correctly, you add on a question. You ask them a higher level question or another question that allows them to basically expand upon their knowledge base or give you another answer, so providing another opportunity for them. And then the fourth technique in the setting high expectations is something that he calls without apology. Um, and that sort of premise here is to not apologize for teaching worthy content, um, which is something I think we 
inadvertently do, at least I know I've done. So, so not saying something like, oh, another case of cellulitis, we've seen this a million times again. Um, but instead saying something like, well, this will be a great opportunity for us to review what we learned about cellulitis and consolidate some of what we learned. Or this is a really great topic because you're going to see it so often in your internal medicine training. Um, so not really apologizing for, for teaching content that um, is worthy of, of being taught. Hmm. So is that last part about uh, no apology, is is that basically the idea that if you do apologize, you're going to undercut what you subsequently teach? Or is right, it, that it's sort okay. of a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If the educator themselves isn't really, you know, motivated, doesn't seem really interested in the topic, then learners themselves might sort of feel that negative energy and maybe not be as interested to learn or not be as involved in the teaching session. And so the goal is to kind of avoid a self-fulfilling prophecy. And also that there may be learners in the room who are interested in the topic, and so you don't want to kind of, you know, exclude those learners for from something that they may be interested in, but maybe, you know, hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, and then uh, I think the next uh, section was um, a rather uh, intriguing title, Gather Data. Um, and that sounds to me like, you know, probably where a lot of the meat is in, in teaching, you know, kind of recognizing what, you know, data you're gathering about what your learners know and need to know. Mm -hmm. uh, but and it, and it sounds complicated, but can you break it down a little bit for us and, you know, what techniques uh, were contained within Gather Data? Sure. So the goal with this technique is to really assess both how much your learners know and also uh, potentially assess the effectiveness of your teaching. So the, te the techniques here all kind of talk about how you can get more information about um, how much your learners know. So the first and foremost one that he talks about is to, it's something called reject self-report, um, which is pretty intuitive and exactly like it sounds. Um, and it's kind of the idea that we're all pretty poor estimators of our own knowledge um, base or we don't may not be able to accurately estimate exactly how much we do know. Um, so not um, so just rejecting self-report and not, not using statements like everybody got it or everybody clear or okay, sort of vague questions like that where it would be really easy for the learners to say, yeah, I got it, um, especially if there are varying learners in the room. You know, people might not feel comfortable speaking up and saying, you know, well, actually, I don't, I don't understand this. Um, topic they mentioned. Um, so starting right off the bat and, and not using statements like that and just having the, the idea, the, sort of the knowledge that um, we shouldn't trust what the learners think they know. So that's a little bit less of a technique and more of just like a concept. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other ones are sort of suggestions for how you can actually gather um, data. So the second one that we talked about was um, targeted questioning, um, which I think is kind of self-explanatory a little bit, um, to assess you know, the retention or assess your teaching effectiveness and to potentially solidify some of the teaching um, by asking questions of, of the learners. One of the other ones that I thought was kind of the more, more novel techniques, I would say, um, is a technique called show me. So actually have the learners show you an answer when everybody answers simultaneously. Um, so an example of that might be, you know, giving the learners in the room a multiple choice question and everybody put up like a finger in the air of, you know, one, two, three, four, or something like that. Um, you know, who would do this? Who would do this? Who would do this? And everybody kind of shows you 
a finger or whatever that may be, however you want to do that, where they all kind of answer at the same time. Mm-hmm. And then they'll, that'll allow you to scan the room and see who answered one and maybe pick on a few different people with different answers to to show you their viewpoints. Sort of a primitive audience response system, I guess. Right, exactly. Yeah, um, so this one was a little bit more primitive. We know we do poll everywhere and things like that where people mm-hmm. kind of um, – kind of answer simultaneously, but it's sort of that similar concept. I think this book was <laughs> probably written before we, we um, commonly use electronic resources. But the idea that everyone um, answers simultaneously and the learners show you the answer, um, except this is a little bit less anonymous um, and probably better for smaller, more intimate crowds because um, you'll actually be able to see who said what answer versus some of the more electronic resources where you don't, you know, mm-hmm. it's all anonymous and you don't necessarily know who said what. Yeah, and it's, I guess, quick and immediate feedback mm-hmm. where sometimes you have to wait for the poll everywhere to come in. Right, 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 right. And people are still shy about, <laughs> about you know, revealing their answers, I think, in poll everywhere. You know, often the, the teacher says, okay, well, who said this? Do you mind kind of elaborating on your opinion? And there's still mm-hmm. kind of crickets. <laughs> yeah. I think people are still a little bit shy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think this is probably a little bit better in smaller groups or groups where, um, you know, you're able to see the audience responses. Mm-hmm. Um, in a group where people kind of feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the last one in this gathering data on student mastery is a technique that he calls affirmative checking. So basically where the learner shows you a sufficient understanding of a topic before moving on to the next topic. Um, And an example that we sort of thought might be relevant here is something like a procedure, for example. You know, if if you're doing a paracentesis with a learner, you might want to have the learner run through the steps of how to actually do the paracentesis with you before you go into the room and actually do it. So kind of like a check that they have at least enough knowledge to be able to do the steps and then go in and do it. Um, And this is probably a little bit best for maybe one-on-one teaching or even precepting or things like that. I'm intrigued by the the first um, or one of the first examples you gave in this section, you know, where you're gathering data by asking specific questions of the learners. And I was wondering, this is a little bit of a digression here, but I was wondering if you had any insights into the concept of pimping as you were going through that part. Because I, I think, you know, if you read through the literature on pimping, which I have done, and there's some of it is rather negative about whether we should be doing it. And I, I think sometimes it's it's more the terminology. Right. Um, the term pimping has negative connotations, sometimes used to humiliate learners and mm-hmm. such. Um, but as you were kind of looking at that specific questioning aspect, um, did you or do you have any insights into the need to, quote-unquote, pimp learners to figure out where they're at with their fund of knowledge and what you need to teach? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, um, to answer your question, I'm trying to think of how to organize my thoughts, but um, this is sort of a form of that, although I think it probably works best when you let learners know in advance, hey, I'm going to be you know, asking you, a series of questions. Um, I'm going to do this for everybody equally. My goal is really, you know, not necessarily to quote unquote pimp you um, or embarrass you or you know make you look bad in front of your um, colleagues, but just as an educational um, sort of mission. I'm going to be asking questions of all learners here. Um, so it kind of works best if you let them know in advance what you're going to do, and if you do it equally, you know, you kind of spread the wealth, and you're not just asking questions of the medical student, for example, but you're asking questions at all levels of learner, and everybody is sort of contributing um, to the educational environment. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And, so- and this technique kind of goes pretty well with another technique that he mentions, um, which we briefly kind of touch on in our workshop, but it's just how to create a culture of error. Um, so if you sort of set the expectations in advance that this is what you're going to do, that this is all learning environment, that we're all learning from each other, and that you are, you as the educator are also still learning, um, it might be more effective. Hmm. Setting expectation setting is important hmm. here. Definitely. Huh. Interesting. Um, yeah, there's a whole art, I guess, to the art of pimping successfully right. <laughs> uh, yeah, total uh, tangent but I was supposed to give a um, talk to our emergency medicine faculty on the art of pimping and they gave me 15 minutes at this faculty meeting <laughs> but fortunately it was cancelled because of the COVID uh, thing so um, I'll have to figure yeah. out a way to do that yeah, in the yeah. future um, and so what about this concept of building ratio? Though I think that was the mm-hmm. last section you guys talked about in your workshop. What, what is that, and, yeah. and how does one successfully build ratio? Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, I think this is probably what I, mean, at least what I thought was the most interesting and the most novel to me um, when I was sort of thinking through these techniques. So the, the idea of building ratio is to kind of challenge the learners to do as much of the cognitive work as possible. So the ratio referring to how much work or effort the learners are doing relative to how much effort you as the educator are doing. And so you want to maximize kind of the the work or the the cognition that the learners are doing relative to you. And so the the four techniques that we talked about here are all suggestions for how you as an educator can sort of promote the learners um, doing as much of the cognitive work as they can. And the first one that we talked about here is something called wait time. And the goal here is really to allow the learners to have an opportunity to think before answering. So not just asking a question and then calling on somebody else, um, but potentially asking a question and saying something like, okay, take 30 seconds and think about the answer to this or something like that. Um, And that allows the learners to give you a richer answer, right? We may have a really quick answer right off the bat if somebody asks us, but if we get we have a little bit more time to think about the answer, we might, you know, build a little bit more depth into the answer. And so um, the actual answer that you get if you give people an opportunity to wait might be richer than the first answer that kind of rolls off the tongue. Hmm. And then the second technique that we talked about here, I think we all kind of do already cold call. Um, This is probably the one that I was most familiar with. Um, But what I learned here after reading Doug Lamov's book about cold call, um, there are a few different suggestions. Um, one of them is when you're using cold call that you want to actually ask the question first and then call on somebody at the end. Um, and so if you ask a question and then say, Bob, what do you think? That way everybody kind of thinks through the answer to the question first um, and then somebody is called later versus if you do it the reverse and you ask somebody's name first and then ask the question, um, everybody sort of stops thinking and turns to the person that you asked the question to, and so they're not all doing the, the cognitive work. Hmm. Um, so that's kind of one trick that I learned to a technique that I think I actually use quite a bit, but now I'm using it a little bit better. Um, the third one that we talked about here, and this is actually one that I now do a lot after reading this book, is everybody writes. Um, so giving learners an opportunity to write down their answers before cold calling. So this one actually pairs really well with cold call. 
Um, and in one way that I do this is in morning reports, like when I run reports for medical students most commonly, um, one way that I'll have them use this technique is to say, okay, everybody take two minutes and write down a summary statement for this patient. Or everyone take two minutes and write down your top three differential diagnoses for this patient. And that way everybody takes a little bit of time to think and to write, and then when you cold call, on somebody, if you're going to use cold call, they'll have had an opportunity to actually think through their answer and develop their answer a little bit more um, and feel like they've had prep time to give you their best answer. So this one actually I think pairs pretty well with cold call, and that's why I most commonly use it. Um, and then the fourth one is called turn and talk, and it's kind of like a think-pair-share sort of idea here where you'll say something like, okay, turn to the person next to you, um, take a minute and talk about XYZ, and then you t turn and talk in pairs. Um, and the important point here after doing that is that this is a little bit less regulated. You know, they can talk about anything. So you want to make sure you get the group back together and debrief and potentially correct any misconceptions or any sort of false beliefs after they talk to, to um, their partner. So the debrief here is pretty important. So this, the last two techniques, the everybody writes and the equivalent of think, pair, share, mm -hmm. um, I, I guess those would probably be harder to do in the clinical environment, like if you're on rounds with a, a team, or, mm -hmm. or do, do you ever actually use it there as well? Yeah, we. I would say I use it the most in our afternoon rounds. Um, so I know every institution does it a little bit differently, but here at the University of Pittsburgh, we actually do attending rounds every day. Um, well, actually, I should say four out of the five days of the week, um, Monday through Friday. So we have an hour with our team um, and kind of like, you know, a small group in the team room. So I would say that's probably where I use it the most um, is in sort of teaching sessions outside of rounds. I see, and those are more... Uh, to discuss, like, specific diseases that you've seen mm -hmm. that day or that week versus, Right, or like, run through a case, do mm -hmm. a teaching session. It's kind of free form, whatever people want to do with that one hour. Mm -hmm. I see. So so it still mm -hmm. is, is potentially doable in that environment. I love the everybody writes thing mm -hmm. just because, you know, sometimes half the room's brain has shut down <laughs> during, <Right. laughs> during the equivalent yeah. of morning report sessions and it. It definitely does keep them engaged. That's a great idea. Huh. Yeah. Anything else in the building ratio section, or did we, we hit all the techniques? I think we hit all the techniques that okay. we mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, another question I have for you, Marina, is um, did you got, when you were reading this book, did you watch all the videos? that? Because uh, does the second volume come with this collection of, mm -hmm. of DVD mm -hmm. with all the videos of, of both like elementary school kids, junior high, high school? Yeah, yeah we watched, I, I can't say I watched all of them, but we did watch some of them. <laughs> yeah, uh -huh. it does come with a uh -huh. video. And did you have any favorite one in, in all those videos that stood out to you? I think, I mean, I can't think of one specifically. Honestly, I think they're all pretty good. I think some of the ones that I liked, I mean, a little, less, little bit less relevant to medical education, but kind of room management and how the educators kept everybody engaged. Um, they used wait time quite a bit. Um, so I remember that distinctly, you know. If you ask a question and somebody puts out, you know, puts their hand up in the air, a lot of the effective teachers would wait, let a few more people put their hands up in the air, and then maybe call on somebody towards the end. Mm -hmm. um, so some of the sort of classroom management... Um, giving people an opportunity to think. Um, 
Mm -hmm. I'd say those are probably the more memorable ones, but I can't think of, I guess, one specific one off the top of my head. Yeah, there was one that I remember really well. I've watched it many times. Is um, It was in the, the Joy Factor um, mm -hmm. section, and it was Mr. Davis um, making the classroom fun for these kids that were apparently mm -hmm. otherwise would have been disengaged. But mm -hmm. if, if you have a chance, go back and watch it, it yeah, yeah, assuming yeah. it's in the it's in the uh, version 2.0, um, okay. second volume. Okay. But so um, wh why do you think this workshop was so popular at the Aptum meeting? I, I hope because it was a topic that people were pretty interested in. You know, I honestly, I think we had a good amount of buy-in from the very beginning um, because I think it's a topic that honestly is applicable to all of us. Um, and it were, I think at least some of these were techniques that we kind of use every day, but a lot of them were new concepts. And so I think that was very interesting to educators, and it was definitely very interesting to me to learn something that I honestly hadn't really thought about before but um, was effective. Mm -hmm. And I think we also tried to condense kind of a big topic and a big book into what we thought were the most high-yield topics. And so I hope that we were able to give the audience members a few suggestions for, you know, very actionable, um, doable techniques that they could go home, you know, go back to their institutions and practice. Um, so I think we're able to give them kind of a plethora and a variety of options depending on their teaching environment and what they thought might work best. Um, whatever educational sessions I work in. And have you ever, have you tried um, either videotaping or sort of, how shall we say, going out and doing field work within your own institution to watch your best teachers and then sort of analyze and apply the Lemov taxonomy to what they're actually doing there at UPMC, UPMC or, or any other institution? Not exactly videotaping, but we actually, so a lot of our clinician educator faculty at the University of Pittsburgh actually did do the, the fellowship and the master's program. So a lot of us are familiar with the techniques um, in this book, and we actually do talk about them, you know, just quite a bit when we talk about, you know, in a variety of different sessions about, like, effective teaching principles and things like that. They actually come up in conversation quite a bit um, already. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and we actually, one of our... One of our other faculty members for her fellowship project a few years back, um, she did a video review where she asked our faculty and fellows to actually video themselves um, and show it to a group of other faculty members for um, suggestions for improvement and things like that. So it wasn't quite based on these techniques, but that was one opportunity where we could actually see um, how other faculty members did their teaching sessions, observe what they did really well, and observe, you know, and then give them feedback on what they could do to improve. Yeah, I guess that sort of answers my next question, more or less, because I was going to ask you what kind of success you've had at UPMC building um, round like a champion techniques into your teaching mm -hmm. culture, but it sounds like a lot of your teaching culture is built upon uh, his work, actually. Is that true, would you say? Yeah, I, mean, I would I definitely say at least a, a good part of it is. I would say a lot of the people here are, fami are familiar um, with this book. And he actually, he came to our medical education day, I think it was two years ago now, when I was a first-year fellow. He came and spoke um, and talked about, you know, himself, his experiences, and then a lot of the techniques that were talked about in this book. Um, so that was actually a great opportunity for all of us. And, yeah, as I mentioned, a lot of the faculty are familiar with these concepts from when they did their master's and when they were fellows here. 
And then I would say just a lot of these concepts we actually do use already. A lot of the senior faculty do use them, especially the everybody writes. Um, I think the writing paired with the cold calling is definitely something that I see a lot of the senior faculty do already. Hmm. Interesting. How, mm-hmm. how, how was he at your retreat, Doug Lemoff? Uh, oh, great. <laughs> what was he? Very engaging, um, mm-hmm. great use of audience participation. Mm-hmm. Um, he talked, I mean, it wasn't all specifically about the book, but he just kind of kind of talked about, like, effective teaching principles in general. Made a lot of, you know, sports analogies, coaching analogies, things like that. Talked mm-hmm. a lot about um, effects of coaching. Yeah. We're looking for mm-hmm. a speaker for our next faculty development uh, <laughs> session in, oh, in, okay. in the fall. Yeah. So, <laughs> I uh, mean, he was definitely very engaging. Huh. Fascinating. Very great. Yeah. I'll have to look into that. Any last comments for our listeners, Marina? Sure. Um, so I think, I hope that this topic is something that a lot of people are interested in and find to be doable. So, you know, one thing we asked our learners at the end of the workshop is just to maybe pick a technique or two techniques, just something manageable. You know, of everything they learned, pick one think about what environment you might want to actually use a technique in inpatient, outpatient, you know, whatever environment you teach in, and then just try it out. Um, and even let your learners know. You can get feedback from your learners and say, hey, this is a new technique I'm learning. I just want to try it out. I would love your feedback on how well it's going and how I can improve it. Um, so I think the, one of the keys to using some of these techniques is just to try it out or pick something that's a little bit more manageable. You know, 62 techniques is a lot. I mean, 12 techniques that we talked about <laughs> yeah. might feel like a lot to some people. So maybe pick, I think for audience members who are listening to maybe pick a technique or two that you learned about today and really think about um, how you might be able to use it and then just try it out. Hmm. And it sounds like if they really wanted to dive in a lot deeper, they could mm-hmm. potentially... Uh, get the book and yep. look at the mm-hmm. 62 techniques. But in, in the interim, I will also, po- if it's okay with you, I'll post your uh, workshop PDF slides on, oh, sure. mm-hmm. the, uh, on the CDIM and Aptum um, discussion boards, as well as the handout that you sent mm-hmm. me that you gave out. Is that okay with you? Yeah, of course. Okay, excellent. Mm-hmm. Well, Marina, I want to just uh, really, really thank you for joining me here today. This is a fantastic topic, and I think just a a great mental break from all that's (laughs) been going on with COVID and everything else that uh, educators and leaders are in medicine are dealing with. So truly appreciate your participation here today. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me. All right, Marina. I will talk to you soon and hopefully run into you at the next after meeting, (laughs) whenever that may occur. (laughs) Whenever we have it in person, (laughs) yeah. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.